Hello everyone, this is Laura Womack and I'm from Never Too Late Cafe and I'm with the Bloom Where You're Planted podcast today and I have a special guest, a relative disclaimer, uh, Lee Pennington and I'm going to have him give a little bit of uh, information about himself and tell us where he currently lives. Thanks, Laura. I'm, uh, I'm, I live in Louisville, Kentucky in uh, the east end of the county, Jefferson County. Uh, all of the county now has been incorporated into the city of Louisville. So uh, legitimately, we're now the 16th largest city in in the country. So, uh, but I live in a little burg called Middletown. And uh, so if you send me a letter, you can either put it Middletown or Louisville, neither one of them will get to me. Uh, I've been here since 1967. My college roommate, Steve Alexander, who's now in Brazil, uh, tells me if I stay here much longer, they'll name a street after me. So, <laughs> so I've, been here, I've been here a little while. <laughs> so tell me about your house. It has a name. Yeah, this is, uh, it's called Kratz House, K-R-A-T-Z. Uh, Kratz means uh, scratch in German. Uh, the land was at one time a Revolutionary War land grant, and there were 1,200 acres given to the person who owned it at its time. Uh, the house was built, uh, well, it started in 1848, was finished sometime in the 1850s, and everybody who's gotten the house has built something onto it, so it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger over the years, but at one time it was uh, in the 1850s, it was a tavern. Uh, I call it a poor man's tavern. Uh, it was, there is a richer man's tavern up on old Main Street of Middletown, uh, but this is where the guys came to. They wouldn't have a lot of money, they would stay here. They probably only had one bed in the original tavern, so if you spent the night uh, it would be the luck of the draw who you who you were sleeping with. If only two people showed up, it'd be two. If it were four, then there'd be four people probably in the same bed. Uh, they did things a little bit different back in the older days than we do now. Uh, now, if you don't have a private room and a private bath, you can't sleep very well. So, <laughs> so di different world. But the the person had 1,200 acres here, and they raised grapes and made wine. They were famous, famous for their wine at the time. Uh, but that goes back a lot of years. Wow. And very interesting. I didn't know the history of it. I know um, uh, several people that live in neighborhoods where the house has been there a long time and it will have the the name of the original people that built it so that's what i kind of thought yeah well kratz uh, kratz was certainly if they weren't the original ones uh, which they they were not the they may have been part of the family that uh, the relatives of the person who got the revolutionary war land grant but uh, kratz was not the original name of the uh, of the owner but maybe maybe descendants but there is a street uh, right off of Lilac Way, which the house is placed on, uh, called Kratz. So it's uh, the family was pretty prominent back in the day, I'm sure. Because they had a street named after them. Yeah. Like you may someday. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> if I live here long enough. <laughs> I, think so, that, I think that was my roommate telling me I'd been here too long. <laughs> your form of art, you have many, but let's start with being an author. So you have 23 books? I do. Uh, I just had my uh, 24th book accepted at the end of August. Uh, so it'll be it'll be coming out a, a novel called Moment of the Butterfly, and uh, that'll be my twenty fourth published book. It's uh, I have written several more than that, but that's the amount that's been accepted and, and published. Uh, or this one's in the process of being published. I've been a writer as long as I can remember. I, the first writing I ever remember doing. Uh, occurred back when I was in uh, fourth grade at the little one-room school in, on on White Oak, where I grew up, in the western end of Greenup County. Uh, and we had a, it wasn't a history book, it was a novel, but it was a historical novel about a family uh, of settlers, uh, European settlers coming to this continent uh, back in the uh, in after Jamestown, and and the novel was about several generations of this family called the Farnham family, and I remember the the novel ended uh, at the at the end of the eight eighteen hundreds, but I lived in the nineteen hundreds, and and I was kind of upset that the that the generations didn't continue. And so the first writing I ever remember doing was was creating two more generations for that novel. And I remember it was about 80 some handwritten pages on big, big long yellow tablet that we had. And uh, and I, I wrote about two more generations bringing that family into the 20th century. I don't know whatever happened to that piece of writing, but I do remember it well. Fourth grade, wow. So you've self-published some as well, is that correct? Say again? You've self-published as well? Uh, no, I never did self-publish. Oh, okay. All of my publications, uh, all of my publications have been... Uh, Accepted uh, an awful lot of them have been by small presses, uh, but uh, you know back in the back in the sixties, especially and especially for poets, uh, the small presses were the the places that one one uh, could get published, and and I had you know an awful lot number wise, an awful lot of poems published in. In literally hundreds of, of uh, small press magazines, I've, I've I've been published certainly in large magazines, but but the heyday of the small presses were the 1960s. Uh, at one time, there were probably probably over a thousand magazines. They were called small. Not because of the, their size, but because their publication uh, uh, subscriptions. They they would, you know, many of them would have subscriptions under a thousand 
thousand subscribers and and uh, but all the poets you know all the all the major poets in America that I know they were competing to be in those small presses along with everybody else so uh, so you know people like Robert Frost and Carl Sandburg and Edna St. Vincent Millay and and all those people published in in what would be considered small presses. But at one time, all the major publishing houses in America felt a, a compulsion to have a, a, a poet in their house. That's no longer true. You'll have many large presses now that don't publish any poets at all. But the... Uh, you know, there, I have I have nothing against self-publishing. Uh, many many poets had to do that, uh, including people like Walt Whitman. You know, one of America's greatest poets. Uh, he published his own first book, and uh, and he would walk along, and people would throw it out on his head. <laughs> That's that's a that's a heck of a response. I've had I've been shot at, but I've never had a, a book of poet, my poetry thrown out on on my head. So, so I'm missing that. So you write poetry, and your novels are they a lot of historic novels as well? Well, uh, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say they're historical. Some of the stuff I do, I do a lot of historical work. Uh, you know, I'm president of the Ancient Kentucky Historical Association, and and have uh, published a lot of articles on on historical archaeological kinds of stuff. Uh, but uh, uh, no, my novel is is I would call it a, a, a very literary novel, uh, and you know, since I'm a poet, it's obviously going to be filled with. Uh, with nuances and symbolism and things that you might not ordinarily find in just a a, a, a straight prose kind of novel. But but uh, I have published, uh, my first book was not a book of poetry, it was a critical work on, on the no novels of Jesse Stewart called uh, The Dark Hills of Jesse Stewart, a study of symbolism and vision in the works of Jesse Stewart. And uh, I took Jesse's first book of poetry, which, by the way, was a self-published book of poetry most people don't even know about. Uh, most people think in terms of Man with a Bull-Tongue Plow being Jesse's first book. but And that, that came out in 1934. But Jesse published his own book, first book of poetry, called Harvest of Youth, four years earlier in 1930. And... Uh, when Jesse found out people looked down on uh, on uh, self-publishing back in those days, uh, Jesse got all the copies he had left of the book and burned them. And, and so that's a very rare book valued in excess of $10,000 per copy. You can find one now. Uh, but I took that book and, and studied the way Jesse put his symbolism and things together, and then trace that through the publication of his novels, uh, uh, through uh, Jesse's novel, Daughter of the Legend, I, 
started with Jesse's first novel, Trees of Heaven, and traced it from there all the way through Daughter, Daughter of the Legend. I can't remember how you, did you co-write with Jesse or he was an instructor? Jesse, Jesse was my principal at McGill High School. Uh, uh, my junior year, Jesse, after his major, major heart attack in 1954, three years later, Jesse came back and became principal at McHale. I, I couldn't believe that happened. Jesse couldn't get teachers, and so he took students with with good grades. Uh, well, I would say the students with the top grades, and he made teachers out of them. So my junior year, I taught uh, uh, seventh grade. Uh, the first semester, the whole semester, I didn't go to a single one of my classes my junior year in the first first uh, semester. I was teaching, so I I, uh, I studied I studied uh, at night and took tests after school. The teachers let me take the test or you know write whatever I needed to write. Now my second semester, Jesse was able to get teachers and and fill all the spots, but he was missing about half a dozen or so teachers when he came into McHale. And rather than close the school down, uh, he had uh, students with good grades teach lower grades. And and, uh, and there were about uh, six of us, as I remember, that he pulled out of class and had him do that. So I was a, I was a teacher when I was a junior in high school. <laughs> so <laughs> and, interesting. I, of, I couldn't remember that. I couldn't remember the relationship there, but um, well, Jesse, Jesse, you know, I'm related to Jesse bloodline. Uh, uh, Jesse's grandmother, Violet Pennington, uh, was the sister of James, my uh, great great grandfather. So I don't know what I have means. to think about that. <laughs> just, yeah, don't think too long as Jesse said, don't a think distant too, relative. As Jesse said, don't think too hard. It'll hurt your mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know why those, those that lineage sort of stuff. It's confusing. I'd have to write it down on paper and then ask someone what they thought. And so documentaries you have done. How many documentaries? Uh, 26th to date. Uh, okay. Uh, did my first one in 1990. The time was married to my late wife, Joy, whom I was married to for 49 years before she died. And Joy and I went to Papua New Guinea with a little eight millimeter video camera and went back into the jungles and did a piece called In Search of the Mud Men. And that was our first, and it was uh, it was something all my life I had been wanting to try to do was to do documentaries, and so this turned out I, I went and and did that. That that documentary just just uh, a week ago screened at the University of Louisville, and uh, I'm still amazed that that what was able to capture on film 
most of it is now historic record because it's all Papua New Guinea has changed incredibly since 1990. When when Joy and I went there to do the film, uh, and we went into the highlands, uh, tribes in the highlands had never seen a blonde-haired girl, and they were just absolutely fascinated with Joy. They couldn't believe her hair. They couldn't believe her skin, and the kids would come and pull her arms and her run their hands through her hair. Uh, so it was, we stepped back into the Stone Age and and and, and I got to film uh, The Wig Men, uh, which is a, a, a ritual that the males go through with a wig man teacher. It's, it's, they learn, they go with him 18 months and grow this elaborate wig, hair, their own hair, and then it's, tied and cut and then it's enormous wig that they decorate and it's those wigs if a tourist gets hold of them they'll pay a thousand dollars just to get one of them they're pieces of art and during that 18 months the the young men learn all they need to know about how to live and survive in their own own culture and uh, uh it's it's you know it's the male schooling. Uh, I went to a little one-room school. They go to the wig man. <laughs> wig man, you know, uh, it's a a maturation process. And it's a beautiful ritual. But anyway, I I got that on film two years before National Geographic got in the film, and so I felt kind of nice about that. <laughs> So that was the beginning of you doing other documentaries, yes, different yes. places around the world. Oh, yeah, I've done, done documentaries all over. Join us next week as we pick up part two of our conversation with Lee.